Free Your Inner Guru is a listener-supported show. Supporting the podcast is also designed to support you by keeping the episodes free of ads, but also with rewards for your donation like the Free Your Inner Guru guidebook, a private listener forum, and live monthly Q&A sessions. To become a supporting member, you can visit patreon.com forward slash free your inner guru. Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru. I'm your host, Laura Tucker. This podcast is a place where we have big conversations about conscious leadership, personal development, entrepreneurship, and the self-help industry, and this interview is no exception. Conscious leadership is a style of leadership that requires self-awareness and a strong desire to empower others. In this episode, Mark Coleman and I explore the benefits of mindful awareness. Mark is an author, wilderness guide, and mindfulness teacher trainer. If mindfulness and meditation have seemed like an esoteric practice for people who have lots of time on their hands, you may find yourself reconsidering as you listen to this conversation about why suffering is optional and how inner peace and freedom are always available when you develop your self-awareness muscle. Enjoy. Our guest on Free Your Inner Guru is Mark Coleman. Mark is the author of From Suffering to Peace, Make Peace with Your Mind, and Awake in the Wild. He's the founder of the Mindfulness Institute and has an MA in clinical psychology. Mark has guided students on five continents as a corporate consultant, counselor, meditation teacher, and wilderness guide. Um, Mark, welcome to Free Your Inner Guru. Thank you, Laura. Very nice to be here. Look forward to our conversation. Yeah, I was so excited when uh, when your book came into my awareness. It, it's the long title is From Suffering to Peace, The True Promise of Mindfulness. Could we start with you sharing what you mean by the true promise? It, it infers that there's a truth here that, that you want to bring into the world. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting title because I'm actually as we discussed a little earlier, we, I'm writing the book partly in, in a somewhat opposition to the over-promising of mindfulness. So it's funny that I have the, the, the word promise in there because I do think there's a lot of over-promising. Mindfulness has exploded, as you know, and be, you know, it's been touted as a panacea for anything from headaches to weight loss to ADD to you know, you name it, it's, it's somebody saying, oh, it's good for this. And, you know, and it is good for many, many things. And that's why it is so popular and, 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 and making its way into every part of society. But the, um, you know, when anything becomes so popular so quickly as mindfulness has become, there's a tendency to, especially in the media, to want to bite-size it and make it packageable, commodify it, and scale it and to do that you have to simplify it and reduce its you know and any any the depth and the complexity and the richness and so what i my, i've been teaching in the mindfulness world both in traditional meditation settings and in you know corporate and healthcare and and you know every every setting sector there is and i've been concerned at the the reducing of mindfulness either to focus or to simply attention, or to being non-judgmental, you know, and they're, they're all elements of mindfulness. And but the the real promise of mindfulness, the point of why these practices were developed for thousands of years and still very alive um, in the contemplative traditions, 
is that mindfulness, mindful awareness, allows us to know ourselves fully, knows, allows us to understand the causes of suffering and how to free ourselves from suffering and the causes of happiness and how to find genuine lasting peace in the midst of our lives. And so the book's intention was really, how do I speak to the depth and the scope of this beautiful practice um, and yet also make, make it accessible to, to the lay person. So that's really the, the intention of the book. And the promise is that mindfulness is a path of awareness that cultivates understanding, insight, that allows us to free ourselves from our self-created mental, emotional, psychological suffering and to find a peace and a genuine well-being and ease in ourselves, in life, and to know ourselves fully and the freedom that comes from that, the inner freedom that comes from that. <clears throat> I love that term, inner freedom. Um, could you explain a little bit what that what that means? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, you know, it's, it's a... It's one of those terms that does require unpacking. Um, so by inner freedom, I mean, you know, and I think it's good to contrast it with, with uh, it's sort of either it's opposite or it's cultural. You know, there's a lot of, like I live in the United States, even though I'm from England, there's a lot of talk about the freedom and freedom of the individual and freedom of our right to do whatever we want. Um, and it's not that kind of freedom. It's an, an inner freedom in that... Um, how to best say it. Um, we, when we cultivate awareness and we, cult, and we, and we learn to abide in, in that clear knowing quality of mind, then the, the conditions of life, although they affect us, the joys and the sorrows and the highs and the lows and the pains and the tribulations, um, there's a sense of inner peace or well-being or capacity to hold you know the ups and downs of life and to find a sense of or to know and to live in a sense of ease that's not rocked by the outer circumstances so it provides an inner kind of balance so you know like you know i have chronic back pain i have neck pain you know Definitely circumstances in my life can be challenging, you know, my health crisis in my family this week. Um, and yet there's, there's, a, there's a sort of sense of, um, because of learning to abide in, in this presenceful awareness, there's a certain kind of place of peace that doesn't get tossed around so much. Even though I care and I respond and I might hurt and I might react, there's a sense of uh, inner peace, actually, that for the most part is accessible. Not always, but for the most part. You weren't always on this path of mindfulness and meditation. Uh -huh. And my sense is it's important to bring this forward because of if someone's listening, and I just heard it um, last week, actually. I, I was at a, um, a, a wonderful event here locally. Two of the people beforehand had been talking and, and one of them said, like, I don't have time for all this mindfulness stuff <laughs> on an ongoing basis. And and I know I, I certainly I keep up a meditation practice, but it's not it's not 100 percent daily faithful. Um, I find that I'm a lot more even keel when I do. 
Um, if, and that may be, a, you know, another way of, of accessing that peace. But if it seems esoteric to somebody who's listening, could you share a bit about your story and how you came to the very, you know, practical understanding of, of why this, why this matters so much in your own life and, and why it matters for you to teach it and share it in the world? Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, I, I grew up in Northern England in a, in a working class, um, neighborhood and, um, moved to London. I, it was the height of the punk era, which was really fun. I was a punk rocker and, uh, I was definitely, um, an anarchist and very politically active and a rebel. I squatted houses, the big squatting movement, which was in like an Occupy Wall Street, except we occupied houses for the poor and the homeless. And so I was very engaged with, you know, I was very much sort of oriented towards the suffering in the world, the suffering of society, blaming the government and corporations and anybody I could lay my hands on, including my family. And um, I was very judgmental. And I, I was as people can be, I was very anguished. I was in a lot. I, I didn't feel much inner peace. I had a lot of um, negativity, uh, reactivity. I had a lot of self hatred, a lot of self judgment. I was very critical, and um, and I was unhappy. And I was looking. I was searching. And I, you know, as you as you as a young person, you look for wherever you can find it. You know, for me, it was politics, and it was socialism and anarchy, and. Um, and that was kind of fun and wild and it was a good outlet for a while, but it didn't, you know, it didn't resolve my unhappiness. And I um, started looking at different spiritual things and I was kind of clueless really. And I had just stumbled upon a, a meditation center in the East end of London, which back then was rare, you know, in the mid eighties, there was not a lot of meditation going on. So mindfulness was never you know, unheard of. Buddhism was considered kind of weird cultish thing. And, but I really trusted the people. The people I met there, they had a sense of dignity, a sense of presence, a sense of calm and uh, kindness. And I was like, "Wow, oh, these people have something. I want to know what they're, what they're about. And um, so I learned, they were teaching mindfulness meditation and they were teaching a loving kindness uh, meditation. And I, and I took very much to both of those practices and um, they were sort of eye-opening as, as, as meditation can be because what meditation does, uh, at least this kind of meditation, mindfulness for Passana Insight, is you're turning the lens of attention inwards and studying your own mind and your heart and your body and your reactions and um, attitudes and views. Um, and you're really looking at, you know, both, uh, you know, what, what's going on inside what's why why are you unhappy like why are you feeling stressed and ill at ease and and uh, and what brings about genuine ease and, and well-being and so it just totally spoke to me so it was very pragmatic it was very accessible it was it was it made sense um and i dropped out of college i ended up going to asia studying with different teachers eventually led me to the states there's a lot of teachers out here on the west coast california and, um, and that's been sort of a lifelong journey of really exploring the mind, meditation, um, and again, looking at this, this real, you know, the, the, the cornerstone of, you know, what, what are the causes of suffering and happiness and how do we release one and cultivate the other? And, you know, that course, that's a never ending pursuit. And, but over time, you know, when one does 
that work, which is kind of a deep, I call it like the trench work. Like you do deep, deep digging into your, into your being, into your soul and, 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 and mind and its habits. And over time, you know, the, there's some resolution because some understanding comes and one uh, learns to access a greater sense of well-being. And, and then about 20 years ago, I was asked to start teaching. And so I began sharing that and, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> and and here and here you and here are and, and your life has been built around it right um just because i brought it up for for that person who's listening and, and thinking you know well how do i make time for all this introspection i'm not that's not my natural default it's not how i think i'm geared what and and please understand that i'm not trying to do anything crazy like hack mindfulness here right. <laughs> but but i just did air quotes just for, for the uh, and uh, what how how can somebody who's feeling um ill at ease who's feeling stressed who's feeling like their environment and maybe even the world if not their immediate family or surroundings is out of control um how would you bring somebody into it and and where would where would you begin? Yeah, and that's a great question, and and it's true for many people. You know, if you've got kids and and a job, or two jobs, or three, you know, multiple jobs, as many people do these days, um, you know, it's hard. You know, there's a lot of stress, and there's you know just you know in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you're struggling to survive, meditation and mindfulness is not going to be a high priority. It's getting the getting a paycheck paying the rent, feeding the kids, getting to school. Um, and I understand that that's a lot of people's reality. And often, I often people say, well, I don't have time to meditate. That's really a luxury. Um, and in one, one way it is. Um, and, you know, I think one of the reasons why mindfulness has spread so quickly, um, partly in response to the stress we're all feeling, there's a sense of ever-increasing time scarcity. We're all feeling frazzled by technology emails and just the relentless onslaught of that experience. Um, and, um, there are ways to cultivate mindfulness that take 10 seconds. You know, you can just like, if we all just for right now, let's all just take three slow mindful breaths. Right, just that, right? I can meet, you know, and I'm med I'm long time meditator. Just doing that in the middle of a conversation, or it could be sitting on a bus, or it could be lying in bed, or you could be doing that in the shower, or you know, standing in line at the grocery store, or waiting for the bus, or whatever it is. Right, it doesn't take that long to pause and to encourage yourself to be present in this case we were doing it to the breath it could be listening to sounds it could be um you know when you're you know chopping vegetables to make your dinner it could be just being present to that um, when you're walking up and down the stairs at work it could be just being present to that physical activity um, so the the good news about mindfulness practice is it's, it's really mindfulness is simply attention. It, it, it's clear awareness of what's happening as it's happening. And um, I think the reason why there's such a desperate hunger for the, 
for for these these tools or these ways of being is because we've lost technology, particularly smartphones, has sort of evaporated all the in-between moments that we used to, you know, we used to walk down the street and walk down the street. <laughs> we would stand at the bus stop and just look around, you know, we would sit in a cafe and drink our tea and we would go for dinner with a friend and just have dinner. Now, all those activities, they're mediated by checking our phones, getting pings, checking our Instagram account. And so um, someone once put it beautifully. She said, when I was a kid, to my age, 50s, we used to just spend a lot of time looking around at stuff. We just lie in the garden, look at trees and look at the sky and kind of space out and kind of chill out. And she said, I agree for my teenage kids. They never have a moment where they just look around because they're either doing something or they're on the phone or they're on, facing a screen. And so, so really partly where we can cultivate mindfulness requires a certain choice. It's a choice to, when I'm standing in line at the bank and I have 30 seconds to wait before the next checker is, uh, clerk is available, I, can I be present and just notice my body standing, breathing a little, or do I get out my phone? You know, or I'm sitting in a cafe waiting for a friend, they're five minutes late. Do I just sort of look around you know, and just enjoy that moment or am I on my phone checking email or whatever? And so, and I think partly these days we need a lot of uh, digital hygiene to resist the temptation to distract ourselves with technology and just be present, walking the dog, you know, and not on our phone or out for dinner with the kids and not on our phones. I'm not saying phones are the enemy because phones could be great and you can learn meditation on an app, which is fantastic, on your phone. Um, but the point is we can be mindful doing anything. And so I'll often say to students, you know, take three or five things you do every day, usually mindlessly thinking, but usually we're, so we're either on our phones or we're thinking, worrying about the next thing, the next thing, next thing. So what if you had every day you take a shower, you clean your teeth, you know, you make a cup of coffee, you uh, walk the dog and you, you know, make a sandwich for work or whatever. Right? If just those five things, you just said, okay, I'm not going to be worrying and thinking and planning and all the stuff I usually do. I'm just going to be present to the heat of the shower, the smell of the bread, the taste of coffee. That is cultivating attention. And if we start to do that every, through the day, we're building this muscle of awareness. And then, of course, meditation is like the lab where, or the gym where you're really strengthening that quality in a very structured way. So you might not have time to meditate for half an hour, but you have time to be present to a whole host of activities, including driving, conversations, cooking, house cleaning, etc. And they can be beautiful ways to cultivate present if we don't do it with rushing and judging and multitasking and all of that that we normally do. That was a long answer. <laughs> That's I, I welcome long answers. <laughs> it's a it's a long interview, and uh, and you had me going to uh, to a number of places there because um, it, it got me to thinking about this habit of distraction and and the habit of and in many times like I talk about numbing quite a bit. So like numbing the even something menial like being in the line at the grocery store. What could be more mundane than that? 
So the urge to dig into the purse or, or, or into the pocket for the phone in order to scroll or catch up on, see what's in the inbox is incredibly strong because, um, and this may be, I, I want to say cultural. And when I'm saying cultural, I'm meaning like I live in Toronto now. I'm Toronto born and bred and, and, and Toronto is a, a go, 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 work, work, work all the time. And part of the reason I took nine years of time out in the Western part of Canada was that um, that was too much my nature to be that way. So I changed, I changed my environment and went after a more um, nature-filled, outdoor-filled life. And, and now that I'm back in that environment for five years, I notice a lot of my habits have been unwound. So, and, and then we have the common environment of, of the technology, which is cross-cultural at this point. It's, 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 it's magnetic and it keeps us, I think it's a sense of being out of body, like up and up in your head and, and out of your body, if not completely up and out altogether. You're just not there in that present moment. One of your um, one of your chapters in your book is about embodied awareness. Um, can we break that down a little bit? Yeah, no, I, you're right. I mean, I say we live from the eye, eyebrows upwards most of the time. We're in our heads, we're in our worries, thoughts, plans, memories, judgments, or just spacing out. And you know, of course, the, the mind is an amazing thing, and we need to plan and structure and strategize and and you know learn from our experience and all of that. But we're based mostly on autopilot, what in neuroscience they call the default mode network, which is mostly rumination about ourselves, usually future-oriented, slightly negative, worrying, anxious, anticipatory thoughts. Not productive, um, not the kind of thoughts that would be useful if we actually are planning, scheduling, and structuring, but mostly just this sort of meandering mind that's slightly negative, and that takes up a lot of energy. And when we're in that space, we're daydreaming, we're not present. We miss the beautiful spring day as it is here in California. We miss the the glee of our children playing in the park or coming home from school or whatever it is. And um, so, so we need to train how to be present. And the easiest way to be present is in the body. The body is always in the present. Our physical experience is happening now. Our sensory experience, like right now, I'm hearing a plane fly by. That's, that means I'm in the present. I hear the bird song. I'm in the present. I feel my, the achiness in my legs from sitting today. That gets me present. I feel my, uh, the heat in my body, the, my breath moving. That gets me in the present. So the body is an amazing refuge, place to ground our attention. It's usually calming when we, ground, when we put our attention in the body unless the body's in pain or in, in distress. Um, and it's always available. You know, so one of the practices I teach in the book and teach in my retreats is walking meditation, where you simply are present to the physical act of walking, which sounds sort of mundane, which it is. And the reason we don't pay attention to walking is because the, the brain knows how to do that, does it by itself. And so we, we start thinking about other things. The problem with that is, you know, we walk a lot in the day if you're walking between work and school and whatever when we can learn to be present in the body, say walking, every time that we walk between meetings, between jobs or school, shops, whatever, that is a time that we can be present, we can ground, we come out of the spinning, ruminating, worrying, and, and, and settle into the body. It's usually moving at a slightly slower rate. So um, 
back to that conversation about um, don't have time to be present. We have plenty of time to be present to our physical experience. Like right now, as you're sitting or as whatever, wherever you are listening to this, driving, walking, lying down, can you be present to your body as you listen? Right? And all the physical things you do in the day from getting dressed to um, you know, washing your hair to making dinner to um, gardening, right? those are times we can ground attention in the body um, or the breath. And, um, and that allows us to be present, comes out of the, come out of the habitual cycle of rumination and actually have a much more pleasant moment to moment experience. It's also regulating for the nervous system allows the, some of the stress to calm down, cortisol to calm down, etc. And it's free and it's available and you can do it in any moment, no matter how busy you are. Even and even though it's free and available, why why does it seem so hard? What are what are some of our our obstacles mm-hmm. to that that we need to be that it would be helpful to be aware of? I, I hear from clients and people in the free your inner guru community that you know I find it very hard to meditate. There must be something wrong with me, and and it becomes deeply personalized. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think I explore this a lot in the book around, you know, the reason mostly we don't want to be present. There's this cartoon that I think sums it up. Uh, there's a picture of a woman standing in line, and in front of her is, is, a, is a family with a bunch of screaming kids. And she's got this kind of like, you know, like annoyed look on her face. And she's, and the, bubble, the thought bubble comes up says, I want to learn to be in the present moment, but not this moment, more like a moment at the beach. <laughs> <laughs> that, that kind of sums it up. We want to be present if the sun's shining and our kids are happy and it's a beautiful day and I don't have to go to work. And But if I have to go to work and stand in line and my body's hurting and my heart's aching and, you know, and I'm stressed, I don't want to be present. I'd rather check out, think about vacation or whatever way we kind of, you know, zone out. And, and that's really key. And one of the reasons we don't want to be in the body, because often the body is not actually that pleasant. We get tired, we get achy, we got physical injuries, we got chronic pain, um, we're hot and sweaty, or you know, any number of reasons why you know we're out of breath. It's humid. Humid, right, right, where you are. <laughs> right, that's breath. my it's thing. Hot. It's <laughs> like, like wow. Who wants to feel that? I'd rather, you know, look at my uh, you know, Instagram account. So because it takes us out of the unpleasantness. And, and I explore this a lot in the book around, you know. As, as you know, creatures, we want pleasure and we want to avoid pain and unpleasantness. And that's totally natural. And yet life's full of pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow. And mindfulness is a radical turning towards and meeting and allowing and accepting whatever's here, whether it's you know, beautiful or sweaty or happy or sad or you know, invigorated or painful. Um, and and so this is the this is why the word suffering is in the title and suffering is not a very popular word, um, and uh, it did raise an eyebrow. It did raise say. an eyebrow, right? Um, and because um, you know, the, there's an equation: uh, suffering. How's it go? Suffering equals pain times resistance. Yeah. Suffering equals pain times resistance. Right. There's plenty of pain in life physical pain, emotional pain, relational pain, you know, ecological pain, you know, just different dimensions. Um, when it becomes suffering, 
when and how it becomes suffering is really the choice point. And, and mindfulness gives us the awareness to see we have a choice. Like, so I have chronic back pain and, um, you know, nobody wants back pain. It's not pleasant, sometimes hurts, generally very uncomfortable. But I don't need to suffer around it if I'm not fighting, contracting, hating, blaming, judging, self-pitying. Right? That's, all, that, that's all extra to, to the, the sensations, which are usually kind of this dull, achy, throbbing, burning kind of sensation. So when I'm, just, when I'm mindful and just present to the achiness of the pain, it's just achiness. It's unpleasant. I don't like it. I don't want it but I'm not suffering around it. I'm not making a drama out of it. I'm still fine. I'm still at ease and peaceful, even though there's something there that I don't like. And that's a great metaphor. And it's also a training um, for how to be with life because there's plenty of stuff we don't like in life, like traffic, like noisy neighbors, like irritating bosses, like annoying political figures, like, you know, who, you know, you name it. But we don't have to be miserable just because they're happening. We have this view, I'll be happy when, you know, my political party gets voted in, my body's happy, my kids are finally, you know, doing good. When I have enough this, that, the other right. thing, money. Right, money, success, fame, you name it. And we forget that actually happiness is available and the absence of suffering is available when we can find peace with whatever's here, which means we can be present and accept and allow and, and, and respond wisely to whatever's here. It's not, we don't, it's not, it doesn't mean we become passive. It just means if there is chronic pain, well, I'm going to notice that, feel that, accept that, because that's how it is. And to do anything else is actually just adding suffering onto the pain. So can we layer on a couple of um, the other topics you address in the book, one being our negativity bias? Um, which as I'm listening and thinking about bringing that into the conversation, it seems like mindfulness and meditation can be like a pattern interrupt on negativity bias, mm -hmm. which is something that we, we all have. Um, but also the idea of the being at cause. Being at? At cause, like the causality mm. of things. Right, right. All right. So, um, <clears throat> let's take the first one. So negativity bias, um, so this is a, um, I love this term that comes out of psychology um, and neuroscience that uh, the brain is hardwired to scan for immediate threat and, and you know, survival needs. And it's how we survived you know, in the jungle. It's how we survived you know, dealing with you know, all kinds of predatory threats as a species. Now we don't, you know, we're not about to be attacked by, you know, a lion or a grizzly, unless of course you're hiking up north of where you are. Um, and, um, but our, our nervous system acts like that. We're constantly looking for what's wrong, what's problematic, what's going to be a threat. And so we, so that attunes us to what's to the negative, to the negative in the environment. The media does a very good job of mostly focusing on this negativity bias, you know, news, bad news cells, um, where it becomes particularly problematic and painful for ourselves is we turn that negative bias towards ourselves. We, we look at all of our faults, what's wrong with us, how we're not smart enough, not slim enough, or strong enough, or smart enough, or cute enough, whatever the story is. We, we look at all uh, what we think of as deficiencies and our foibles and inadequacies and 
Um, and so we, so we see ourselves in a very uh, distorted lens, usually negative, usually critical. And then I talk a lot about the inner critic because that's such a tremendous source of, of unnecessary suffering. And, um, and so it's only when, when we start to be mindful and self-aware, we, we start to see, oh, look what I'm doing with my attention. You know, I'll, I'll be sitting in a cafe and I'll look around the room and I'll notice I'm just looking at all of people's faults and foibles. And like, that's a really negative, unproductive and unkind thing to do. How about I look around and see the goodness in people, see the good, see the nice way the, you know, the barista smiles at the customer or the way, you know, somebody's helping somebody or um, somebody just walks into the cafe with great poise and, and presence. And so one of the lines that I love about um, the teaching that I'd studied uh, in Buddhism, this line from the Buddha where he says, uh, whatever the mind frequently dwells and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind and the heart, which is basically the, 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 the genesis of, of negativity bias. Um, whatever we focus on, that becomes a habit. And that, that what becomes a habit, that's what we do. And we need to see, well, is that habit creating well-being for myself or others or not? And the negativity bias, the judging mind, whether it's judging ourselves, criticizing others, that's clearly a good example of that really doesn't work so well. You know, it's fine to be have a critical mind when it's needed, but not this general, pervasive, ongoing, negative lens that we see the world through distortion. At the risk of um, jumping right into pop culture self-help, that seems to me like a deeper layer of um, what a lot of us know as the law of attraction, uh -huh. right? Like the, where the thoughts are driving the habits, the habits driving the doing, the doing driving the results. Mm -hmm. So we can look back at the thoughts for the results. Mm -hmm. Does that does that work in that paradigm? Is is that? Yeah, in, in the way that you describe it, yes, I think the law of attraction, as as much as my limited understanding of it, um, uh, yeah, I think to some degree that principle is at work. That if we say focus on, you know, don't lose my house, don't lose my house, don't lose my house, don't want to be laid off during a downturn, don't want to be laid off, that of course is creating a lot of negativity in the mind, negativity bias. Um, and so, you know, which affects the body, affects the heart, affects our perspective. And so, um, yeah, it, it's similar in noticing where we incline and really just asking, is that inclination healthy or not? Is it onward leaning, leading or not? Um, so I differ somewhat from the mind having the ultimate power over what we attract into our lives, because I think the mind is a very small limited thing compared to life and the universe and all the laws the other laws that are going on but i do think it makes a difference if we are always always orienting towards negativity that's what we'll see and probably experience to some degree how can we use some of the the wisdom of meditation to turn this mirror on ourselves see that negativity bias see where we are probably you know I'm sensing a, a big personal responsibility piece, 
but then you don't just want that to become more beating up on yourself, more negativity. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book you talk about in the section about, um, you know, mindfulness of the heart, you know, self-compassion and, and the role that has in being true, our, you know, our authentic selves in the world, being vulnerable, but being compassionate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I'm glad you brought that in because there's an important section in the book. I mean, I explore the body, the heart, the mind, and the world. And the, you know, to summarize that section really, um, for me, what mindfulness reveals is, you know, it it reveals our humanity, our humanness. And the reality of being human is life isn't easy. Even if your life is easy, it's still not easy. You have a body that gets aches and pains. It ages. You have uh, uh, you you all, we're always at risk of losing things, losing loved ones, or losing health or vitality. We get sick. Um, uh, we have a mind that's you know sort of <laughs> irrational and often out of control. Um, so there's a lot of vulnerability about being human. You know, we could you know, dear friend of mine's mother. One day was incredibly happy, big family party. The next day, near fatal stroke. She's in a coma that won't, and she won't recover. And that I, I saw her last week, and you know, it was the happiest family gathering I've seen in a long time. And then the next day, boom. So, so mindfulness is you know helping us meet the the truth of the human experience, and and that it, one part of that experience is that it's vulnerable, and the the appropriate response i think to vulnerability and the tenderness of being human is kindness is compassion because hard it's often hard sometimes hard just getting out of bed if you have mental health issues if you have anxiety depression which you know huge swathes of the population do right now or have any other kind of uh challenging condition physical mental or otherwise and um so the judge will come and say, well, you're stupid. You should have done better. You made a mistake. You could have, you know, you know, you don't need to be like that. You know, look at everybody else who's doing great. Compassion is, is more meeting the, 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 the experience with, with care. It's like, yeah, this is hard. It's hard to feel depressed or feel anxious or feel lonely or feel like confused about where you are in your life. And when we can meet that experience with kindness or with care or with friendliness or with compassion, it, um, it's, it's, it's a bit like the, the, the kind heartedness infuses mindfulness with a much greater capacity to hold and be with experience. And then when we can be with experience and hold it with care, we can then be much more responsive. We can go, Oh, okay. So, yeah, this is hard. It's hard to get out of bed in the morning because I feel depressed or sad or lonely. Okay, so we feel that and we kind of process that. And then it's like, okay, so what's needed? Well, actually, I know when I feel like this, like I did this morning, like I know it's good for me to get out and take a vigorous hike in the woods. So I got up, took a vigorous hike, and I wake my system up. And it's like, oh, now I feel a little brighter. Okay. And I'm a little more ready to meet the day and I'm ready to get to work and, you know, see clients or whatever else I'm doing. So, um, so, so it's a, in a mature spiritual practitioner, mature person, these qualities of kindness and, and mindfulness are in, integrated. So we meet ourselves and life with a kind attention, with a warmth, 
with, with a loving presence, which is a beautiful thing to give to ourselves and to the world. A couple of years ago, I was on my way to, um, it was a photography workshop. Um, I flew to Eastern Canada to see one of my, my mentors and uh, I grabbed one book off of my shelf. And, and that book, uh, it's called Power Versus Force. Have you ever heard of that? Um, yeah. yeah, it's David R. Hawkins. And, and it's this big, heavy, even the audio book is, you know, you wouldn't want to listen to it while you're driving or operating heavy equipment. <laughs> um, it's really dry. However, it's what jumped off, you know, out at me to take. And I'm on the plane and I was going there. Um, there was some some real synchronicity in, in returning. I think I've been to, um, his name is Freeman Patterson, um, who I'm hoping to get on the podcast at some point. And he does workshops, and most of which are photography, more, most are spirituality. And I was going out there to to heal some of some some trauma. And uh, and he he runs an environment that I'm deeply trusting um, uh, of. And I got on the plane and I opened up this book and it opened up to a page. So one of those page openers and it opened up to a page on, um, the, the, on compassion. And there's this whole scale of, um, of human emotion and it's assigned, it's like, it's the scale of consciousness and within the, it, it opened up to the section on shame and it said that shame is the, the closest emotional experience to death, that it is so low um, on the scale the, that, you know, it is even, even guilt and anger is more empowered than the feelings of shame. And then it went into a few um, paragraphs on, on compassion as the antidote to shame. Mm-hmm. And, and this is emblazoned in my memory. And the message that I picked up of that was, it was simple kindness to oneself is the most healing and transformative power there is. And, and, and that's what I took into that retreat. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Looking at this, looking at this self-compassion, trying to look at life and events in life and challenges as well as successes and happiness through a compassionate lens. And I'll tell you, it, it changed the way I saw the world. Yeah, well, it will, because you're, you're, you're one shifting out of that negativity bias. You're, you know, shame is a really raw, tender, painful experience. You know, we collapse, we feel bad, we feel deficient, we feel empty. And, um, you know, it's painful. And, you know, the only appropriate response to pain is kindness because it sucks. It's horrible. Nobody wants to feel shame or, you know, depressed or, and it's, it, I think we overlook it because it's so simple. You know, maybe we psychoanalyze why we've got shame and it's, you know, because of intergenerational trauma and blah, blah, blah. And so that's all true. And it's good to understand why and the causes and conditions for things back to your earlier question. But, um, What's me, what you know? The, the, the you know, the, 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 there's, an, there's an interesting framework for understanding experience. Um, it's three questions. Well, it's really two questions. What's happening now, and how am I relating to it? Right? Mindfulness reveals what's happening now, and it also reveals how we're relating to it. But the kindness 
is one of the attitudes, like you're saying, that we can bring to experience. And if we can find, and when I, when I say kindness, because sometimes you say, well, what does that mean? It's like, well, if we can find a sense of friendliness or warmth or acceptance um, or understanding, um, then we're well on our way to finding the capacity to hold that experience and not suffer with it. Right, because when as soon as we engage awareness, and particularly if that awareness is is infused with kindness, then um, then we have we have a tremendous capacity to hold even the deepest darkest experience. Um, I went through some early pre-verbal traumas and went through really painful states of terror, annihilation, um, deep depression. you know, suicidal thoughts. Uh, it was pretty bleak times. Um, and I'd been meditating about maybe a dozen years, something like that. Um, so I had some kind of, you know, stability or some skills to draw on. And, um, and what remained, I, I was really flattened by this eruption of this early trauma. And what remained was the qualities of awareness and compassion. Like I, 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 without trying, because of having trained my mind and heart for a while, I did have the capacity to hold it with a kind attention. And as bleak as it was and as hard as it was, that made it all workable. Didn't make it pretty, didn't make it pleasant, but it made it, it, it helped me to not, add suffering onto the pain. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. And that's what we can bring to both the small, you know, sorrow or to, you know, really deep, deep challenges in life. Thank you for sharing that. It's very powerful. Mm. Um, Because I think what I was hoping you were going to say is that it took it away. And it doesn't sound that (laughs) right. Like, (laughs) that's, that's the fairy tale that 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 we that that archetype of I did this and it took it away, which is ultimately what we're looking for in our distraction and our numbing. Right. Right. To take the to you know the grocery store, take the pain of the mundane away. Take the pain of the million things that I need to do between now and bedtime, which will never get done. Take it take me away. Right. But that's not really so this is then this is where this this conversation and your work is a bit counterculture. Mm-hmm. Because I think we have, especially in North America, we have this idea that if we do one, two, or three, or um, or get all hyped up, power through everything, um, and it's all going to be well in the end as long as you think good thoughts and and not ever have to face a, a great big challenge or trauma. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We all want the happy ever after story. We want the fairy tale, you know, spiritual mythology of, you know, and I, and I, I thought that too, I was, you know, wanting to get enlightened. So I wouldn't have to feel and deal with the messiness and the painfulness of life. Right. And what, and what, what in the end happened was I, you know, when we, to, to awaken, we need to integrate all of ourselves. And if there's trauma in the system that needs to be integrated as well as everything else that's been suppressed and stuffed and avoided. And so, um, uh, 
so you know to be careful what you ask for and and you know what what that experience did bring it didn't make the pain go away it didn't make the suffering go away or the pain go away but it blew open my heart and and since that time i've been able to access a, a very profound level of compassion for myself and for others in a way that i'd never been able to access my my heart i would say was sort of closed partly just keeping you know pain and numbness down and when we go through that kind of eruptive experience rupture um it you know it 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 tenderizes us tenderizes my heart and allowed me to access you know beautiful qualities of of care and compassion and for my own and others vulnerability which you know I'm forever grateful for even though it was painful in the moment it led to some beautiful not just qualities but also ways of being and ways to relate to life and to other people's suffering which I work with a lot and and it speaks back to that that idea of the compassion because it comes from the heart that we're talking about um, into being that force for you know for the um, transformation that a lot of people are seeking yeah yeah, I was speaking last night, as I mentioned, and I this phrase came to me. The, the fourth part of the book is is um, finding peace in the world, but it's really it's it's encapsulated by the, the shift from self centeredness to service, to focus to, mm. to overly focus on ourselves, and you know, definitely mindfulness can be introspective. Um, but once we do that inner work and start to free ourselves up, we're much more capable to help others to serve to do good work in the world and that's really the point of you know deep spiritual practice ultimately is we we step outside of the prison the confined of our small self-centered world and realize we're deeply interconnected deeply interdependent and our work becomes therefore you know doing you know, acting in alignment with that sense of connection and, and helping others and helping the world in, in whatever small and large ways that that happens. What if that that feeling is that I can I I can only help a small bit? How does mindfulness and the individual relate to sort of the I, I want to use the word the collective mm. consciousness yeah. or the, the the collective good, especially right now in these times? Yeah. I mean I think I think in truth, yeah, I think in truth for the most part, we can only influence a small bit, right? A small, limited people around us. Maybe we have a public office position where we can influence a little more. Um, but even then, you know, whatever position, everybody's limited. And everybody, you know, you talk to the CEO of any Fortune 500 company, and they say, I don't have any power. I don't the shareholders have it, or the board has it. You know, and so there's a, there is a general sense of feeling powerless. You know, even, even a powerful politician, I mean, clearly, if you're at the top of that, ladder you can influence more change but still it's limited um and so but we can all do something we can all influence the people immediately around us our family our friends our colleagues our neighbors our strangers um and so that that is you know since we are interconnected web of life influencing one small thread of that weave of life influences you know the whole tapestry and so we just have to do what we can in the immediate spheres that we operate in, because that's all we can ever do. 
and trust that that is is an important contribution. You know, what one person does does make a difference because we are connected. So, and then hopefully, you know, if we're doing good work, hopefully that can ripple out in ways seen and unseen. We never can know where our work might take us. I I'll often hear ten years later, I you know taught something, said something, did something, and that influenced this person's whole career shift and them starting a nonprofit or who knows what. And so we never know what the, the ripples of influence that we can do from good intention and, and good work. And, and conscious, and th- this is part of the, the, uh, the conscious impact versus being on autopilot. You think of even in the context of, um, of parenting as an example, yeah. um, it come, it comes up in my coaching practice often that sometimes the limitation that um, that is coming up is something because of something that was said to them as a child that just happened to penetrate. And it was an unconscious moment from the person in the position of power and authority in that relationship. And they were probably having one hell of a day and didn't mean to say, you know, fat, stupid, this, that, what, whatever it was. It just went in and it locked and it loaded. Mm-hmm. And it's at times like that that I'm struck by. It brings me back around to um, looking for increasing, increased self-awareness, increased mindfulness. It, it, that points us back because you just don't know in any given moment what that shitty thing you did just caused the ripple effect of or what that kind thing you just did caused the ripple effect right and that's you know very down to the moment yeah and it down down to the self-awareness in the moment and whether that's as you say with parenting or spouses or stranger in the street you know we yeah the 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 ripples can be long and deep and it behooves us all to cultivate awareness cultivate kindness and, you know, we all doing the best we can. Of course, we mess up and we fail and we, you know, make mistakes. And then it's part of being human. We try to not judge that, but just simply learn and, you know, pick up the reins and keep going. You know, that's, that's, that's the human life. So let's, let's, uh, this is feeling like a, a, the conversation is starting to just kind of all weave together. Mm-hmm. If there was one or two things that if you had a listener's wrapped captive attention and they were listening to this and feeling like yeah you know I could do with another um, attempt at a mindfulness practice or someone who's in a mindfulness practice and wants to take it to you know the next level of of awareness what do you tell your students let's be students of you for a couple of minutes here as we bring the conversation to a close I would say that to remember that mindfulness, which is awareness, is, in, is an innate quality within us all. And it's like this shining jewel that's often covered in clay that we have this, the potential and skill to you know, cleanse the jewel, to allow that jewel of awareness to shine um, that we can cultivate it in any moment, no matter how busy we are or how stressful our life is. 
and that when we can cultivate that quality through mindfulness, through attention, through intention, um, we can, as I kind of coming back full circle to the beginning of the, the, the discussion, we can begin to turn our attention to what genuinely brings about well-being moment to moment and what uh, causes or adds to the burden of this moment, what, what, what adds to the, to the stress or distress. And, and knowing that the clarity that comes from awareness allows us to unhook, disengage, disidentify, and find peace or ease in relationship to whatever's happening. And that's always available. Awareness is our birthright that we can always access. So that's my two cents. <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you for that. And you make it sound 100% worthwhile, sort of stopping that default mm -hmm. automatic loop mm -hmm. that's playing mm -hmm. to step down out of that into our bodies and, and into, um, into, um, this freedom actually this, the, into that inner, that sounds like inner freedom to me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Always available. Well, thank you very much for your time, for your book. Um, I just did a, a Facebook Live in this crazy 100 days of Facebook Live thing that I'm doing. And, uh, and I was saying that this is a book that while I've read it for the purpose of sitting down on a timeline to sit down with you, I intend to go back to the chapters that jump out of me, much like at that other book, mm -hmm. and do and do some of the exercises as a part of um, of my meditation or mindfulness practice. So I'm very very grateful for that, and uh, and it definitely um, I recommend it for both um, for both people who are new to mindfulness, but also people who want to have a who are experienced and want to just get back into that deeper dive of it and understand some of these these old, very old time-tested principles behind it. It's good to, we don't get to hear about that as much as I would like. Mm -hmm. That's part of why this podcast exists, uh -huh. actually. So Great. thank you for bringing that here today yes. to our, our shared space. Great, thank you, Laura. Um, if people want to find you online, what's the, what's the best place that they can go? Yeah, so my main website is markcoleman.org. That's M-A-R-K, Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N.org. And has, you know, all kinds of information about my books. And I teach a lot of retreats and mindfulness teacher trainings and nature meditation teacher trainings and all kinds of activities, um, some writings on there. So please go to markcoleman.org and you'll find everything you need about me and my work. All right. And I will leave that link in the show notes for easy access. Great. Um, it's been a pleasure, Mark. Thank you very much. Thank you, Laura. Take care. Thank you for listening to Free Your Inner Guru. I know you have a lot of choice where you receive your inspiration and information. If today's episode resonated with you, I'd be grateful if you would take a few extra seconds for three quick things. First, if there's an idea or story that you know would make a difference in someone else's life, Follow the link in the show notes back to our website where you can easily share it with them. Second, subscribe so that you can be part of the ongoing conversation on whatever app or website you're listening on. 
big conversations become the catalyst for meaningful change. If you happen to be listening on iTunes, please take a few moments to leave a rating and a review. The last thing I'll leave you with is that we are building a community of conscious leaders to engage in big conversations and support the Free Your Inner Guru podcast. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash free your inner guru or support.freeyourinnerguru.com. Until next time, I'm Laura Tucker signing off for Free Your Inner Guru. 